Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. We read in Acts chapter 17, and in verse 30, the following. It's part of Paul's preaching before the Greeks on Mars Hill in Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. We should not really be surprised at this situation. Uh, Paul had been speaking earlier of Jesus and the resurrection in Athens in Acts 17, verse 18. And he says such things, having established the folly of idols and the unity of God the Creator. And we see here that some mocked. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 33, Paul, 31, excuse me, Paul spoke of um, Christ and him crucified as foolishness of the world, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. But it's the wisdom and power of God for those who are being saved. The idea there is God is overthrowing the wisdom of the world, therefore manifesting the folly or weakness of God, which are still wiser and stronger than man. Now, we don't see the resurrection mentioned explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, but it is the subtext throughout. Because later in the same letter, Paul's going to game out the situation if the dead are not raised in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-20. If that's the case, that means Christ wasn't raised, we're all lost in our sins, our faith is in vain, and we of all people be most pitied. So the word of the cross and Christ and him crucified on its own would be foolish, indeed, if it weren't for the resurrection. After all, without the resurrection, Jesus' death is a mere tragedy. And so, we're in the right to see that if the word of the cross is foolishness of the world, then how much more so? is the idea of resurrection. And in fact, resurrection would seem to be a great folly and a most embarrassing idea of Christianity, at least as understood by Western culture. And so we do well to explore the folly of the resurrection and why the resurrection changes everything. And the reason the resurrection seems foolish is because, as Ben Franklin supposedly said, the two certain things in life are death and taxes. And there's one thing that was very well known to people throughout time. Once you're dead, you're dead. Now, sure, there has always been these stories of uh, people coming back from the dead, uh, Dracula, for instance, or zombies. Uh, but that fear has not stopped people throughout time from recognizing that once a person is dead, they stay dead. Death is the ultimate finality. And that really is what undergirds the whole book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher's conclusion about life is absurd and futile is based on how death comes to everyone, no matter who you are or what you do. What should we think, feel, or do in the face of that kind of thing? We're all going to die. So what? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15.32, we see one response. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, is the hedonistic approach that many have taken. We can see this in Epicureanism, that in the face of the reality of death, the idea is to just try to avoid as much pain as possible and to live uh, the best, uh, most pleasurable life one can. The other way to handle such nihilism was in a sway of escapism. And this is the way of a lot of philosophers, especially Plato, uh, positing a spiritual life that we could cultivate in order to obtain some level of spiritual bliss or to be united with pure spirit after death. And it's also what would lead to Gnosticism later on. Either way, the corruption and decay of life to the point of death and the pain and suffering that go with it are taken for granted as reality, as life, and something we cannot overcome. 
And it's into this world that the proclamation of Jesus the Christ has arisen of the, from the dead was set forth in Acts 2 and 17 and in 1 Corinthians 15, as we've said. Now, the idea of resurrection made sense to some in Israel. It gave hope for the martyrs. We can see this in books like the Apocryphal 2nd Maccabees. It's mentioned explicitly in Daniel 12 as well. But even in Israel, we know that many were unconvinced. In fact, uh, Paul is able to start quite the controversy in Sanhedrin Acts 23, verse 6 through 10, by calling out that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And that led to a big argument between Pharisees and Sadducees, the latter of whom deny the idea of the resurrection. But even in Israel, as we can see in Daniel chapter 12, the expectation was there was going to be a general resurrection on the final day. The idea that the Christ would rise first as the first fruit of the resurrection, and others would come later on a day of resurrection, could be you know, suggested on the basis of uh, the first fruit concept, and as Paul will elaborate on in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and following, but it's not something that you would necessarily expect based on what has been revealed. In this case, Martha's confession, John 11, 24, uh, her confidence that her brother will be raised on the last day uh, is consistent with what we can see in Second Temple Judaism. So on the Jewish side, there's that. On Among the pagans, the idea of resurrection was not only preposterous, but entirely contrary to everything they would hope for or expect. They're trying to get away from the body and all that which is physical, and not a few might have imagined this idea of an embodied eternity as hell in and of itself. And so we shouldn't be surprised that, yes, when Paul spoke of the resurrection uh, from the dead, many would mock Paul uh, there on Areopagus in Athens. Uh, nor should we be surprised that the claim of Jesus' resurrection would uh, move Israelites toward confession or repentance. Because, after all, what do we know? We know that dead people stay dead. And to this day, there are some who think of the apostles as gullible and naive, opening, open to this idea of resurrection, as if they weren't aware that dead people stayed dead. And to that, all we can say is that the apostles were not expecting a resurrection. They were not all waiting around on the first day of the week at the tomb, and when Jesus came out, asked why it took him so long. Uh, Thomas's doubt that he expresses in John chapter 20 is not unreasonable. They understood quite well the very truism that dead people stay dead. And so Thomas wanted some indication that indeed the dead had not stayed dead, if that was indeed what happened. It's interesting to note that David Hume's great argument against Christianity, that those who are enraptured by the Enlightenment consider devastating, is based on a statistical impossibility of the resurrection. And that's because no one else has come back from the dead, never to die again. And therefore, statistically, it's impossible for that to have happened. It is not as if early Christians would have denied that. Uh, the resurrection absolutely seems foolish to the world, but what's interesting is that they continually insisted on it anyway. They insisted on the bodily resurrection over and over again. And it leads to a very compelling question. Why would people stand up and boldly proclaim something so seemingly ridiculous and ludicrous to the world? Because early Christians not only believed that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, but they made it the focal point of their proclamation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20, as we've mentioned, Paul stakes all of Christianity on the claim of Jesus' resurrection, that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, if the dead are not raised and we're lost in our sins, and uh, we are to be people of all, well, to be pitied. That's how confident he is in the resurrection. But that's also how crucial the resurrection is to everything. John will say that the denial of the body of Jesus means it's a denial of his death and resurrection, and therefore denial of the whole faith in 1 John 4 and 2 John chapter 1. Such are antichrists, we're not to have anything to do with such people. So why is the resurrection so important? 
And the apostles set forth the meaning and implication of Jesus' resurrection. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, Peter will stand up on the day of Pentecost and declare that Jesus' resurrection is the basis of the claim that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. That Peter said that Jesus fulfilled all the things that the prophets had said about the Christ. He especially has in mind Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. Very important eschatological ideas there about the, the kingdom that will never be shaken. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the resurrection is the key to this understanding. After all, most would have imagined that Christ would be born, live, reign, and then suffer and die, be raised afterward perhaps. But as Peter makes known, Jesus was born, lived, suffered and died, was raised, and then he ascended to reign. By raising Jesus from the dead, God highly exalts Jesus. And at the end there, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we talk frequently about how we're supposed to have this mind among ourselves because Jesus humbled himself greatly. But to what end? Well, God exalted him and gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on earth, under earth, and above the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of the Father. The resurrection is how Jesus can reign over an eternal kingdom that has no boundary or end. The resurrection is how Jesus is a king forever. And so if Jesus has been made Lord in Christ in this way, everyone needs to submit to him because we're all going to be judged by the standard of what he has said, according to John 12 and verse 48. And it's because of Jesus' resurrection that, as Paul pointed out there, as we read in Acts 17, uh, we have assurance of the day of judgment because Jesus is risen from the dead. And this is simply because we have the confidence there's an afterlife. Uh, now, there's a fairly pervasive belief of the afterlife among humanity. A lot of people have claimed to see spirits, ghosts, or some kind of shades uh, of those who have gone on before us. But we can't provide any empirical proof of the spiritual realm, let alone of any afterlife. For that matter, there's no empirical proof of the spiritual dimension of mankind, uh, his soul or his spirit. But Jesus' resurrection gives us confidence that there is life after death, since Jesus was dead, but he lives again. And since he ascended to the heavenly places in Acts chapter 1, having been bodily raised but then departed to be seen no more, we have confidence that those heavenly realms exist. And, very importantly, as Paul will make clear in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11, that when Jesus died, uh, the death that he died to sin, he, he, he dies no more. He's already died once. Uh, sin no longer has power over him. And so Jesus continues to live on in the bodily resurrection, the transformed body, and therefore we have confidence in the existence of eternal life in Jesus, that what Jesus promises in John 3.16 other passages can indeed be satisfied. And so according to Paul, Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of the day of judgment. Since there's an afterlife, there's a God, and this God has made himself known in Jesus, and thus is going to hold us accountable for what we have said and done in this life to determine uh, the nature of our life in the hereafter. And that's really what Paul's trying to get at there in Acts 17, 30, and 31. And so Jesus' resurrection is the ground of the hope of our own resurrection. And he provides a sustaining hope for those who trust in Jesus. And we see this over and over again in Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 John 3. Uh, Jesus' resurrection, unlike the, the concept of many today, unfortunately, was never intended to be some kind of one-off fantastical display of God's power. See, look, we can raise a body from a dead here. See, look, we prophesied it and we made it happen. Uh, it's not just to show God's power. Uh, Jesus' resurrection is the promise and confidence for the Christian that on the final day he or she will be raised in Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 ultimately is all about. And that's what really uh, draws its great power and its great strength.
at the end of that passage. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does a perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The death of sting is sin. Sting of death is sin, excuse me. And the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly what that resurrection body looks like, but we have the confidence to know in 1 John 3, 1 and 2 that we will be like Jesus in the resurrection. We will be like him. Now, any hope of the afterlife that is less than the restored and transformed bodily existence is a denigration of the hope that we are to nourish in Christ. And that's in Romans 8, 18 through 25. Very important to notice how Paul puts this. Beginning in verse 17, And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there's the, there's the whole thing. There's this confidence that God has not given up on his creation, that we have a hope sustained in the resurrection. It's not here yet. It's not something we have. We have spiritual life right now. We have a restored relationship with Jesus right now, if we are in Christ. But we don't have the redemption of the body yet. And we're, we are allowed to live in that confidence uh, and hope if we, are, if we would sustain that hope. Anything less than that, any idea of some kind of disembodied spiritual bliss in heaven is our eternal fate. is something that's pagan. It's not Christian. It's Gnostic. It's not according to faithful teaching. And it comes with severe consequences. Those who suggested the resurrection was already passed in 2 Timothy 2 were considered as gangrenous and had departed from the faith. In 1 John 2, 4, and 2 John 1, uh, John's warning about Antichrist is about those who have denied Jesus is coming in the flesh. Uh, why they do that? Because they were embarrassed by this idea of God taking on flesh and of a embodied uh, eternity. Uh, that was something that they found very abhorrent. And so that's how we can know the resurrection. The resurrection we can know that there is more to living than this life. That Jesus has gained the victory over sin and death. It's worth pointing out that it's a Greek philosophical idea that the physical universe is hopelessly corrupt and ultimately good for nothing but abandonment. Not for nothing did these Gnostics we've been talking about combine quote-unquote Greek views with Jewish Christian ideas uh, through this myth about Yaldabaoth, where wisdom, called Sophia, by an heir begat Yaldabaoth. Yaldabaoth presumed himself to be the only god around, and in his corruption he created the physical universe that was corrupt, to which the higher aeons eventually sent the Christos, Jesus, to teach these poor uh, embodied souls the way of knowledge and truth, Gnosis. Uh, to transcend the physical, to be united with the higher spirituality of the eons. That sounds familiar. 
Well, we don't have to make a lot of changes, and that's what a lot of Christians would even say as well to some degree or another. But in Scripture, God made a very good creation in Genesis 1, verse 31. And as Genesis author and Paul proclaimed, the problem with the creation was the introduction of sin and death, not the creation itself. And through the power of death and resurrection, he overcame the power of sin and death, and he triumphed over the principalities and powers over this present darkness in Colossians 2, 15. Again, God took on flesh, dwelt among us, died in the flesh to redeem mankind, was raised in the body, remains in the body, and puts to lie the suggestion that the physical cannot find redemption. And so in Christ we can overcome sin and death. We can live to righteousness. We don't have to be slaves of sin and death anymore, according to Romans 6, 14-23. And so the Christian can move forward recognizing that there's more to life than this life. We don't need to cling to this life alone as if there's nothing else, as those do who have no hope. as the way Paul puts it so eloquently in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. And so Jesus' resurrection is the game changer in our realm. Everything might seem to be the same, but in reality nothing could ever be the same. Because Jesus' resurrection means that death has no power over those who serve him. For its entire existence, humanity has been gripped with a fear of death. Think about how many things people do, consciously or unconsciously, because they fear death and dying. The fear of death is the tyrant's greatest tool in Satan's wild card. Because after all, what's the worst the government can do to you? They can kill you. When all else fails in temptation, what can Satan threaten? Death. But what happens if somebody is freed from the fear of death on account of the hope and resurrection? The tyrant is exposed as powerless. Satan is defanged. And that's why we can see this picture in Revelation chapter 13 through 15. That there's this beast empowered by the dragon. He's able to deceive the majority of people. Uh, Who is like the beast? Who can overcome the beast? And so they give worship to the beast. They take on his number uh, and his image and the mark and do all of the things that he says. But the saints overcome him. Uh, through their blood of the Lamb, their testimony, they love not their lives even to death in Revelation 12:11. They suffer and die, absolutely, but they gain victory over the beast. Because Christ, Caesar might declare that he is Lord and Savior, the Son of God, but all he could do is kill Christians, and they still would not give him the glory due to God. And what happened when he tried to do that? Well, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs was seed. Christianity flourished in the Roman Empire and eventually overtook it. And in Christ, we can overcome sin and death. We are granted access to God in Christ to overcome the evil one and the powers and principalities who have turned aside from God's ways. We are to represent the greatest danger to Satan's power over this world. And even beyond the work of Satan, we recognize that death is not the end. We, don't, we can truly live. We're set free. Uh, so we, we don't have to be in so in love with this life to go to extreme lengths to prolong or save it. And we can live with the ultimate goal of resurrection in mind. We can have hope and confidence and peace despite physical limitations, despite illnesses or conditions or aging or are the, all the other things that give, get us gripped in this existential anxiety and despair about our lives because we trust in the God who overcomes sin, pain, suffering, and death on the cross and in the resurrection. It's this which empowers Paul to use the kind of language that he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says... So we do not lose heart, in verse 16. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And he'll go on to talk about the desire to have the the, the clothing of the resurrection, so to speak. 
Now, to the world, what does this look like? This looks like it's absolutely bonkers. Ludicrous commitment to a cause, even the idea of wasted life or wishful thinking. But why would the world think that way? Because they remain, remain deceived by the dragon and the beast that he raises up to do his bidding. And as Paul said in the beginning of chapter 4, that even if our gospel is veiled in verse 3, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so that, there you go. They're deceived and blinded by the God of this world. And so really, in a lot of ways, Jesus' resurrection is really the original red-pilling. That goes back to the Matrix, where uh, Neo is, is offered a blue pill and a red pill. If he takes the blue pill, uh, he will uh, go to sleep and forget all the things that he's seen. So he takes the red pill, he will uh, be given a sense of enlightenment. He will now see things the way they are. He's going to wake up in the reality uh, that exists, not just the Matrix. And of course, there's no movie if he doesn't take the red pill, right? But that idea there is that the resurrection is a chance to see the way reality actually is, so that one can actually partake in new and real life. Uh, Satan, the principalities and powers, have deceived the nations into doing their will. But through Christ, we're given opportunity to see the working out of God's purposes in the world and participate in them. This was not made known before Jesus could save, and prophecies veiled the human understandings, but it's now made known through what God has done in Christ and what he has spoken in the spirit of the apostles, as Paul explained in Ephesians 3. And everything looks different once you look at it through the lens of the resurrection. Because the creation no longer seems hopelessly corrupt. Yes, it's subject to corruption and decay, but in Christ it will find redemption in the end. Life now has purpose, not merely to perpetuate itself, but to begin to experience the fullness of life in Christ, this now but not yet of resurrection. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as he's concluding this passage, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he continues on that way. We now have this new creation, this new life, even though we still maintain this old life. And in light of the resurrection, we know that we can't hold firm to this life if we want to save it. This is why Jesus can say, uh, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses himself, his life for my sake will find it. This is why he says uh, that we need to take up our daily uh, cross daily and follow after him. This is how Paul can say he strives to obtain the resurrection, and ends the passage by saying in Philippians chapter 3, that we await a, we are citizenship in heaven from which we await a Savior who will transform our lowly body to be glorified like his body. Yes, we need to be obedient earthly authorities, as Paul and Peter both made clear in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, but we have no reason to fear them. Because what can they do but cause us to suffer and to obtain the victory in Christ? If we love not our lives even to death. Through the resurrection, we are liberated from finding immortality in this life. And if you think about how many things people do uh, through trying to find youth or trying to make a name for themselves or try to do all kinds of things to find some sort of immortality on earth. But when we understand what God is doing in the resurrection, we're freed from that need to try to find immortality in this life. We can find real pleasure in this life. We can find in this thing, and we can understand that life does not hold the promises everybody wants to make of it, but in only God and the promise of eternity he offers in the resurrection can really satisfy those yearnings and those desires. Uh, the beautiful picture we can see at the end of Revelation. And so Jesus' resurrection 
turns the world upside down for those who trust in him, that nothing could ever be the same. Yes, in the world, death is a finality. Once you're dead, you're dead. And so this can be led, used to terrify people into compliance. Uh, do what I say or I'll kill you. A lot of people do that. It causes a lot of anxiety about purpose and motivation. Who am I? What am I doing? Because I'm going to die. And it leads people uh, to find solace in either hedonism, well, I'm going to die anyway, so I'm just going to enjoy it, or escapism. I have to find some ideology that will make all of this seem worthwhile. But Christians proclaim Christ crucified and raised again, maintaining a hope that if we suffer with Jesus, that we'll be raised with him. This is a very bold claim, but it's unrelenting. It's either true, and we must transform our lives, or we must reject it and continue as we are. And that's why to the world, the message of the risen Christ is foolishness, completely bonkers. But to those who are being saved in Jesus, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the question comes up, what are we going to do? Are we going to accept that Jesus was crucified for our transgressions, but God raised him from the dead on the third day? Are we really willing to accept what that means in regards to our lives and its ultimate purpose? Are we going to take that red pill and accept true reality, no matter what it may cost us? Because we can't imagine that we can believe in Jesus as the risen Lord, and yet continue to live as if the word of the cross and the empty tomb is foolishness. We cannot presume to live as if the world is right, that the resurrection and all this Christ stuff is bonkers, all this stuff about sacrifice and, and living for others and not self is, is ridiculous, and to absorb evil and not return evil, and to overcome through suffering, that's all completely nuts to the world. It's only life-changing if we accept Jesus' resurrection. But if we accept Jesus' resurrection, we must have that transformation in life. Otherwise, we're not really believing in Jesus' resurrection. We're just trying to hedge our bets. And we should not be deceived. God is not mocked. He will know what we believe. And so let's recognize that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. That the weakness of God is stronger than the strength weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And we need to put our trust in Jesus, the risen Lord, and we should live accordingly. So glad that you've joined us again. If you've been benefited by this, we encourage you to share it online or with your friends in other places. If you have any questions, if you'd like to have a Bible study or correspondence course, uh, if you have a prayer request, if we can be of some service some way, like to come visit us, uh, you can check us out online at VenturechurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. Uh, you can also contact me if I can be of service personally through my website, DeverboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.